Hey, everybody. Welcome to Friday the 13th, the series. I'm your producer, Robert. And I'm your host, Hill Street. And after a complete, spoiler-filled recap of the episode, we are going to discuss the show you either just learned existed or always wondered how it existed. We promise the answers will be few and far between, because we're just here to have some goofity fun exploring a show that, despite or possibly even because of its faults, isn't good and isn't so bad it's good, but is still somehow oddly charming. Let's dive in, shall we? Hill Street and I have only seen episodes one through six, and she just received the script and is about to read through it for the very first time. Hill Street, when you're ready, action. Episode six, The Great Montero. An air of whimsy and wonder is created as the camera drifts languidly over a stage musician's props to gradually reveal an elegant magician pouring a flute of champagne he uses to roofie a young woman. Son of a... It's the first shot, show! The first shot! To be fair, can't believe I just wrote that. Fatim the Magnificent... To be fair, can't believe I just wrote that. Fatim the Magnificent is drugging her for the purpose of theatrical murder, so... Not as bad as it seems. But I'm really in a box because that's the backdrop against which I must now pedantically nitpick the timing and staging of this scene. Let me do that again. I believe it's Montaro. I No, it's Montero. I was thinking back to um, that song that came out. It's pronounced the same way. Which, which song is that? Lil Nas X, Montero. We can double check, but I'm, I'm pretty confident it's Montero. Okay, yeah, I mean, you just watched it. So, great Montero. Robert from the future here. It turns out both Hill Street and I are correct, because weirdly, Luis Roby insists on pronouncing it Montaro, even though every single other actor pronounces it Montero. But really, isn't that exactly the kind of inconsistency you've come to expect from this show? Fatim the Magnificent is drugging her for the purpose of theatrical murder, so not as bad as it seems? But I'm really in a box, because that's the backdrop against which I must now pedantically nitpick the timing and staging of this scene. Here goes. First, although the time frame parcels... First, although the time frame parcels out information little by little, it doesn't take a lot of backtrapping... Good gosh. <laughs> Sorry. It's going to be, gonna be one of those. <laughs> no, that's, well, that's all gold. That's cast gold right there. Let's go ahead and start from here goes, okay? Thanks. Here goes. First, although the tight frame parcels out information little by little, it doesn't take a lot of backtracking to determine these two stood feet from each other, facing each other for 30 seconds without speaking. Why they couldn't have written a couple lines to be heard off screen, I cannot fathom. Second, she almost certainly watched him drug her drink. Did any of that occur to you when you watched it? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, it was really strange. <laughs> so as usual, this show making some strange choices right off the bat. Yeah, totally. There was a lot of things in this episode that I thought were particularly strange and didn't make a lot of sense. Oh, fantastic. We'll shout them out as we go. Okay. Maybe the most interesting thing happening here is that she's not a groupie who's been invited to his dressing room. She's interested in being his new assistant. Just after she passes out, the team is interrupted by a young, mustachioed, mustachioed? Mustachioed, yes, you're correct. Just after she passes out, the team is interrupted by a young, mustachioed Alton Brown, who we infer is his current assistant, who informs him they have to go perform earlier than scheduled. Yeah, never trust the Food Network on matters of scheduling. Technically, the assistant's name is Robert, but come on, that's Alton Brown. Now, dressed in quasi-Middle Eastern clothing, it was a different time, kids. They perform the Cabinet of Doom, in which a bed of swords, a 
pack of swords, a murder of swords, will be thrust through a cabinet containing Fatim. Probably not his real name. In his dressing room, something that looks like a rejected monolith? Yep. In his dressing room, something that looks like a rejected monolith from Kubrick's 2001 imposes itself on this small room like the Griswold's Christmas tree. Looks great. Lot of sap. Strangely, it seems even bigger on the inside, where we find the drugged girl, bathed in red light, coming from... Unclear. The Cabinet of Doom is taken for a test spin on a cloth dummy filled with sawdust. Good showmanship dictates they... Good showmanship dictates they ha... Oh my gosh. Good showmanship dictates... Dictates. What's wrong with me? You're going to be okay, kid. You're going to get through this. Good showmanship dictates they have to do this, but the dummy is so goofy looking and the image of it bleeding trace amounts of sawdust kind of mars the effect. Yeah, thank God they didn't use that orange face thing from the Halloween episode. Yeah. That that would have terrified the (laughs) hell out of me if that thing just kept popping up in, in different episodes. That's funny. When Fatim climbs in, a faint ADR'd voice asks, is he going to do that? So congratulations to the background actor who got thrown a line. The sword drops, blood runs from the monolith as the woman inside screams, and Fatim emerges unscathed from the Cabinet of Doom. Later, as Fatim packs up the cabinet, the show gives us our first POV kill as someone sneaks up on him and activates the cabinet. Despite having ample warning, Fatim forgoes stepping slightly to the side to instead turn and watch himself be impaled. At least he died the way he lived. Hey, a second first for the series. Outside Curious Goods, we see a woman in white walk past the store. To the best of my knowledge, this is the exact same piece of footage used in episode 4, A Cup of Time. Or, if it's not, it's a different take. Maybe a slightly different angle of the same two background actors walking past in the exact same way? Other episodes have reused a piece of footage within an episode, but I'm pretty sure this is the first time different episodes have shared footage. Good gosh, you have watched this way too much. That is (laughs) terrifying that you've noticed that. Alright, confession time. Somewhere when I was doing some research for the show on IMDb, I saw a piece of trivia about the woman in white, so I was on the lookout for it. Okay, that makes it slightly less terrifying. Inside the store, Mickey dusts while eating a sandwich. Are we sure this bit of business wasn't intended for Ryan the Lion, who seems to be present, who seems to be presently, oh gosh, oh gosh. Yeah, I was gonna Who's... ask. I'm, was I'm like, sorry, but since sound? since you broached the subject, what was that word you just said? I don't know. Did did you I just? I'm sorry, but did you just flub your flub? I did. I did. That's where the state that I'm at today. Whoa. So that tells you how long this is going to take. Inception level mistakes here. We're going deep. Yeah. Copy that. You're doing great. You're doing great. And uh, we're not going to get through it all anyway. So (laughs) just take your time. You know, have fun with it. Every actor's favorite piece of direction. Uh Uh-huh. I know. Just relax. Have fun. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, you're free to complain. I guess you already know that. (laughs) I've gotten you many times on record. (laughs) Yeah. But, uh, you know, uh, call me out. Who seems to be, oh my god, who seems to presently be working on achieving Lyle Lovett's hairstyle. Do people eat while cleaning? Hill Street, ladies of the podcast, write in and let us know. Um, I will eat while doing anything. There's no activity that I, well, I'm going to stop writing that sentence right there. Never mind. By the way, I'm not saying only ladies clean. I'm just asking for the female point of view on this. That's fair. I didn't even pick up on the sexism there. So, you know, <laughs> you could have breezed right by that. But well, just got to step and dodge that bullet. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to step right back in front of it. Yep. Just back right out of that <laughs> one. You could have totally gotten away with that. It's only now I realize John D. LeMay might have been channeling Bruce Willis for this portrayal of Brian the Lion. No, not the Bruce Willis you're thinking of. I mean, 
Yes, that one, but not the action star Bruce Willis, moonlighting Bruce Willis. Man, what I'd love to ask him. By him, I mean John D. LeMay, but also Bruce Willis. Crackerjack Marshak recounts everything we already know about Fatim, just to let the audience know he knows it. A little pretentious, Jack. You said it fine, but just be a little more judgmental. A little pretentious, Jack. Also, why are you so impressed by magic tricks? You know real magic. Oh well, I guess a good elk can also be a good mason. Oh god, that's right. I'm, so, I'm sorry, did you just laugh at that? I did. <laughs> a reference a reference to elks and masons? Are you? Do you know what elks and masons are? I was thinking about a video game thing. Okay, stop, full stop. Please go on. <laughs> well, I was thinking about this video game um, that came out recently called... Um, okay, I'm going to know what the name is. Hold on, give me a second. Um, some It's something to... Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. It'll come to me. Um, Meaning you know that it's a sequel, but that's all? Yes, but I know what it's called. Um, it's killing you. I was going to say, let's go on, and then just whenever it... It's going to pop into your head, and when it does, just go ahead. Just bring it up. Oh, God, that's right. Jack also performs magic tricks. I hope I had just dream I hope I had just dreamt episode five, but no. Of all the opportunities to maintain continuity show, you're focusing on the one that makes Cracker Jack Marshak a total creep? Well, that's just dandy. Upon learning Fatim's real name, they realized he once purchased one of their haunted curios. The... Hoodin? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's gonna be a... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's the, uh, I've got the phonetic pronunciation after that. Udan. The Udan box. The Udan box. No, <laughs> not Udan. <laughs> so why is it, why is it funnier when you say it correctly? It just is. That's a ridiculous name. The Udan box. That's what they call it. No. It looks like the beginning of Houdini. Yeah, yeah. I'll let you take it away. Sorry to interrupt. No, you're good. No, not Houdini, Udan, the French magician from whom Houdini borrowed the name. And just to clarify, as this episode has a lot of cabinets and coffins and boxes and such, the Udan box is the, I can't say it and not be funny, um, as this, uh, coffins and boxes, the Udan box is the murder monolith that drugged girl was trapped in. Oh God, again, Ryan, why are you now pairing your business shorts with calf-high tube socks? That is a bridge too far, sir. I like that Ryan pronounces it Houdin, close to Houdini without the I. Jack pronounces it Udan in the French style, and Mickey just wants to know which one is right. I don't know about you, Hill Street, but there's something about this dynamic I can relate to. <laughs> Hitting a little close to home? Oh, yeah. I spend this entire reading just wondering how to pronounce anything. <laughs> but you're, you're building your vocabulary at such a, an astonishing level on this project. Yeah, you would think, but I'm not sure how much sticks. I finish and just black out. Oh, I know you use all these words at work the next day at the water cooler. Oh, yeah, I can't wait to use pedunk... Ped I already forgot what the word was earlier. Pedantic? Pedantically. Pedantically. Ped pedantically. Pedunctically. Pedunctically. <laughs> can't wait to use that tomorrow in the office. Oh, that'll fool them. They'll be right yep. into their phone yeah. trying to figure out what that word means. Especially when I stutter over it eight times. You should do that. You should use the word incorrectly, intentionally, and if they just nod and pretend like they know what it means, you know that they're full of BS. Exactly. That's how you get them. Sucker. That wasn't even a real word. That's how you get them. Hold on. Wait. Pause for one second because I want us to Google. Wait, are you looking up the video game? I, it's driving me nuts. Can you remember anything about it? Like which genre or what the point of the game is? Yeah, it's like a fantasy thing. Um, yeah, yeah, it's definitely not that. Um, it's like a fantasy game. They have all these different creatures. They have like, you know, like Mason and, and um, elves and 
orcs and all this stuff and it just came out recently and it was the second one um it's not world of warcraft it's not league of league of legends no uh diablo oh my god it's like right on the tip of my tongue too it's freaking um Baldur's Gate 3. Baldur's Gate 3. That's what it is. Oh, I said Diablo, but I was thinking of Baldur's Gate. Ah, dang it. Yes. Baldur's Gate 3. Yes, that's what it was. And because I saw all these characters in it, I learned about all these different, like, you know, like I said, like, there's, like, the Mason and the, the, uh, what's the Zen guy? What's the Zen thing? Um, Monk? Monk. And, like, elves and, and whatever. All these different types of fantasy characters some of my friends play this game and and i was like and i i enjoyed designing the character but when it came time to play i was like yeah i'm out i just want to make the character that's the fun part so two things but when I saw uh, first one so, sorry to interrupt Go first on. one uh are you thinking of mage i don't think so oh i'm i'm not familiar with something called a mason within the fantasy realm am i wrong is there not a mason let me look now i gotta look that up i mean there could be but that's i mean that would literally be someone who chisels blocks of stone which yeah i mean they, that that you know that game is so deep maybe they do actually have masons Baldur's Gate three mason that's an actual character class that's something you can be as like a profession yeah yeah i think so because I, I i see mason's guild walkthrough wait maybe not oh mason's guild well yeah maybe it's not an actual character oh, okay i could be wrong I mean, if you can be things like a barkeep or a cobbler then i guess mason makes sense but i mean yeah those are more like careers those would be more like maybe someone you would meet as you're wandering the world um yeah you're yeah right. i mean I, I take it back i could see a context where a mason could exist in that world like you said especially a guild of masons it might be like uh, someone you have to interact with on an adventure like oh, i gotta go to the mason's guild to get a side quest or something yeah but you're totally right feasible. You're, you're right though it's not one of the, the like original characters that you design yourself as i'm mixing it up with the werewolf game that we play sometimes <laughs> the like you know that game where you lie? Oh yeah, werewolf, or I've I've seen it played as mafia. Yes, yeah, that. But you're right. You're you're right. You're right. It's not one of the things that you design yourself as. I was going to ask though, and then I guess point number two is, whom are you gaming with? I'm not really playing. So my friends, like, um, so I'm in this group of. I have like a group of friends out here. There's eight of us. We call ourselves the werewolves because we play the werewolf game all the time. And a bunch of them play video games, like Bradley, Lomar, Matthew. They all play video games a lot, and I like to watch. So, and I like like some of the like tamer games, like I said, like Little Nightmares. I was obsessed with. When they're playing, like, Baldur's Gate, that's, like, way above my head. But I like the designing of the character part. I think that's fun. I'm like, ooh, I want purple hair. I want to be this character. And then once they start playing, I'm like, okay, you lost me now. So you kind of watched them online, and then they kind of helped you through the creation process? Yeah, and in person, too, though. Oh, okay, cool. I remember you mentioning Little Nightmares as your curio, but I wasn't sure how into the world of gaming you were these days. Mm, not so much. I Like I said, that game was, like, the 1 and 2, Little Nightmares 1 and 2. That's, like my favorite game ever but i don't do a ton of gaming i'm just so bad like i don't know who could really enjoy playing with me that much because i'm just unbelievably bad well these days playing a game is basically a full-time career yeah the it days is. of the donkey kong and pac-man are long over yeah exactly <laughs> it's a serious time sink a real investment exactly no for real Mickey and Ryan the Lion go to interrogate Elton Brown, who couldn't appear more likely to have murdered Fatima if he tried. Maybe he's still angry that the Cabinet of Doom is a unitasker. During this scene, Ryan plays with what I think is a prop wine bottle that's supposed to appear to break in two. 
It's odd foreshadowing for a coming scene, and I suspect it's the exact same prop, even though it isn't supposed to be. I'll go ahead and jump in. Do you know who Elton Brown is? No, I don't. Don't really watch much Food Network, right? God, no. Copy that. <laughs> okay, then. Moving on. After Mickey and Ryan leave, Alton has a phone conversation in which the production didn't nail the timing of his lines, so the other actors' responses are rushed and, even then, barely fit the gaps. At the Temple of Magic, performers are busy preparing for a contest offering what? A hundred thousand dollars in 1987 for a magic contest? Oh, and admit admittance? I can never say this fucking word. Admittance? Admittance? Admittance, yes. Admit admittance? It's a hard word, right? Yep, sure is. You're like, nope. <laughs> oh, and admittance to the Magic Star Society? Great. Well, sorry, can I just get one more pass at and admittance to the Magic Star Society? Really punching the sarcasm of and. Oh, and admittance to the Magic Star Society? Nuts to that. The winner is taking that money and buying a tropical island. I'm just going to assume the Canadian writers couldn't be bothered to check the conversation rate between Canadian and American dollars conversion rate. I'm just going to assume the Canadian writers couldn't be bothered to check the conversion rate between Canadian... Oh my god. I'm just going to assume the Canadian writers couldn't be bothered to check the conversion rate between Canadian and American dollars and assumed this was a dollars to peso situation. It's being run by Monty Martin, an old friend of Jack's, but it'll be more useful if I just refer to him as Bob Hope. Mickey and Ryan show up to join Jack, even though Bob Hope keeps reminding everyone it's a closed rehearsal. Bob tells them Fatim's stuff has already been sold off. Not sure why he would know. So the gang leaves. Bob approaches the most magician-y looking magician that ever magicked and... Hang on. Spellcheck doesn't have an issue with magicked? Are Silicon Valley tech companies hiring wannabe wizards now? I mean, it sounds right, doesn't it? Back to the scene. Bob Hope approaches the great Montero and tries to kick him out, but he asserts he's not only a magician, but that he'll be performing the Coffin of Blood, aka the Cabinet of Doom with a fresh coat of paint. Apparently the name change is enough to throw Bob off the scent, because he never questions a mysterious new magician performing a trick he knows just bought a man a gruesome death. Or maybe every act is life and death. It would explain the $100,000 purse being offered. And one more pass. Of that whole thing? <laughs> no, I'm uh, sorry. Just the, it would explain to the end. It would explain the $100,000 purse being offered. Just for fun, let's do one more pass and just punch wood a little bit. It would explain the $100,000 purse being offered. Did that purse seem high to you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, even nowadays. Yeah, like, you, that, that's no, a... what magician contest nowadays would offer $100,000. Yeah, I don't know, but sign me up. I'll figure something out. Oh, we should start an act. <laughs> I do have the gams to be your assistant. <laughs> Back at Curious Goods, the gang strategizes, and my previous joke about the show not doing second takes is proven precedent. Pres prescient? Prescient, okay. I really shouldn't have put proven prescient. That is a bit of a tongue twister. I apologize. <laughs> proven prescient. Back at Curious Goods, the gang strategizes, and my previous joke about the show not doing second takes is proven prescient. In the middle of a long take, John D. LeMay, Ryan the Lion... Starts to say the wrong thing. That's confusing. In the middle of long take, John DeLamay, Ryan the Lion, starts... Were you going to... You put two people. Well, it's the, it's the actor and then the character. Gotcha. Okay. In the middle of a long take, John DeLamay, Ryan the Lion, starts to say the wrong thing, pauses ever so slightly, corrects it, and keeps going. Either they didn't do multiple takes or this was the best one. Just stunning. It's like watching the set of The Honeymooners come apart. But that show aired live. Just to be nice, I do like the ambition of this shot, which not only follows the character through the store, but ends with them staged in depth. 
would have been cool if they'd been just a hair less overlapped in their final positions, but sorry, sorry, I I'm doing it again. With some cajoling, Bob Hope agrees to let Crackerjack Marshak enter the magic contest with Mickey and Ryan as his assistants so they can secretly investigate. They'll be auditioning right after Progenus Penzini? Prodigious Penzini. Prodigious. They'll be auditioning right after the Prodigious Penzini. Hey, a uh, Pazin. Ah. <laughs> 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 I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I built it up for myself. I knew that was coming. Um, I, I saw it going wrong, but not wrong in that way. So it's like four times as funny. Uh, Paisan. Paisan. There's absolutely no good reason why you would know that word, but it's Paisan. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it was the question, the obvious question mark that you added to the end instead of my exclamation point, but everything about that delivery was perfection, Hill Street. <laughs> it was also just the defeated tone. <laughs> yes. You know what? You're, yes, yes, and you are correct. That that did take it to that next yeah, level. By the, the exhaustion <laughs> in my voice. Uh, uh, sadly, ironically, phonetics didn't help you when Italian is an incredibly phonetic language, but... Yeah, that's funny. Hey, uh... Hey, uh, Pajon, Bob Hope runs. Did I do it again? <laughs> pay, pay, pay. Warmer. Getting warmer. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, no disrespect. No disrespect. Pajon. Pajon. Pajon with the accent on the last syllable. Pajon. Pajon. Eyes on. Yeah. Okay. And <laughs> no, don't talk just... anymore. I got to say it before it leaves my head. <laughs> oh, but I've got more direction. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. Pies on. Hey, a pies on. Bob Hope runs <laughs> off. Probably make... <laughs> you shut up. <laughs> last time. Absolute last time. If you, if, if you don't get it this time, it's perfectly fine. We'll move on. It's pies on accent on the, the second A. Pies on. And and since I've already stopped the direct, you could uh, just get a little more excitement. The, the whole idea is that a paisan is basically your countryman, someone from your native land. So a little bit more excited, as if uh, you're Italian seeing another Italian. You get what you get. <laughs> get what you get, and you, you, you're going to like it. <laughs> You'd be damn thankful for it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you're telling me, Hill Street. All right, hold on. Yeah, get a running start. Let's back up. Yep. Hey, uh... Paisan! Bob Hope runs off. Bob Hope Perfect. Off. Moving on. Perfect. No, you're not allowed to try again. You're not allowed to try again. That's the one I'm using. Go ahead. Keep going. We're not, Bob we're... Hope runs off. Probably to make fun of Johnny Carson's tie. And Ryan the Lion... Okay. Bob Hope runs off. Probably to make fun of Johnny Carson's tie. And Ryan the Lion heads down to the prop room. But first, we get some lingering shots of the mysterious and sinister Miranda rehearsing on stage. Oh, sorry. Just a random thought I gotta throw out there. Did you notice that they used the exact same vanity mirror for this episode as they did for Lady Die? Like, the exact same set? 
No. You're saying, do you mean the entire green room was the same or just that one prop of the vanity mirror? I'm pretty sure the whole green room. Now, you've seen these episodes 17 times each, so you would know better than me. But definitely that mirror and everything was exactly the same. Wow. You'd have to you'd have to look back and forth. But yeah, it's like, I mean, it, I, I'm pretty sure the whole set was the same. I mean, it was in the same place and everything. Wow. When we're done recording, I'm going to go back and do that. Yeah. Is there something, I don't honestly, I don't remember off the top of my head. Is it particularly ornate or... Like, is it something that you just, when you saw episode four, like you just really keyed in on it because it's such an interesting mirror? Not really. It's just the the way that the shot was of like Lady Di in the mirror with the lights around it. I, it was like the exact same shot with the same mirror in this one. So I felt like I was looking at the same shot. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me if they just use like a green room or something in the studio where they film and... It's just going to be the green room for any episode moving forward. And I didn't make much of an effort to make it look different. But. Or a dressing room, I guess I should say. Yeah. Good catch. Wow. I'm going to check that out and uh, either I'll include it later in this episode because I think we're going to end up recording again. Or if not, I'll I'll bring it up next time. Okay. There's nothing about this show that will go uncommented on. <laughs> Ryan finds the Cabinet of Doom with Montero's name on it. The giant property of sign might seem on the nose, but it kind of reminds me of the system at Los Angeles's props. Los Angeles. You don't say sisses, right? Yeah. The giant property of sign might seem on the nose, but it kind of reminds me of the system at Los Angeles prop houses in which you just tag items with the dates you'll be renting them, and the whole thing essentially works on the honor system. Maybe I'm nostalgic, but I like this. Miranda slides a letter under the bright red door of someone... The resolution isn't high enough to make out the nameplate. Tommy, an aspiring magician who looks a bit like Jack, secretly watches him practice escaping from a straitjacket with the aid of a key hidden in its folds. I can't explain why, but Mickey looks incredible in these shots. Maybe some combination of makeup and lighting? Hill Street? Little help? Yeah, it's funny. I kept thinking in this episode that she looks different in every scene. Like, drastically different. Like, one scene, I wouldn't think she looked very good. In the next scene, she'd look great. In the next scene, she would look amazing. I don't remember specifically what part you're talking about, but there was one scene where I thought she looked awesome, and then the next scene, I didn't think she looked awesome. In the very first scene where her hair was up, I mean, her hair was down, I did not think she looked good. Mm-hmm. Like, her hair was crazy, and her forehead looked big. Oh, I did not did not notice the forehead thing myself. Well, I did. Clearly. But then, like, this, there was the scene where her hair was up when she was, like, the little magician assistant, and she looked good in a lot of those scenes. Yeah. It was just, it was weird. Yeah, I, I know what you're talking about, though, because I noticed in certain scenes in this episode that she looked great. I have to think it's a lighting and makeup thing. I mean, what else would it be? But, yeah, it was weird. Maybe you can speak to the makeup a little bit more. I'd bring up the lighting later on, because this episode in particular, I thought, had some of the most cinematic lighting. And I bring that up and my speculation as to why a little bit later in the script, but I think that has something to do with it. I didn't really notice it. Well, I mean, yeah, I noticed that the lighting was different with the guys, but I mean, they didn't necessarily look any different. They just looked more dramatically lit or more like television lighting. But with Mickey, I'm like, wow. In some of these scenes, it was it was like that episode of Seinfeld. It's just in certain scenes or lighting, she just really pops. I mean, she's always pretty, but in this this one scene in particular, it's just like, wow, even by her standards, it's like a cut above. Yeah, yeah, I, I caught some of that too. It's just, it's just funny that all the different ways she's looked and, you know, different hairstyles and maybe slightly different makeup and everything, she's never looked more feminine than the episode where she was playing a man at, at that monastery. So true. I think about it all the time. 
Since I called out John D. LeMay earlier for flubbing a line, it wouldn't be fair if I didn't mention that Chris Wiggins, who plays my man Cracker Jack Marshak, interjects a quick, uh, into his lines that I don't think was written in the script. To bail him out, I'll pin the real mistake on the editor, since Jack's back is to the camera and the stall could have been omitted, or the line potentially 80 yard In the dining room? Commissary? Cafeteria? Mickey and Ryan the Lion are apparently chasing white wine with coffee based on the glasses and mug in play. But they get roped into doing some detective work when they notice Montero yelling at his beleaguered daughter about the blackmail note Miranda slid under their door. Ryan tails Montero, giving him a chance to pass a framed poster hung so crooked I can't believe John D. LeMay resisted the urge to reach out and correct it himself. Did you notice that? No, I didn't. Yeah, it's just crazy crooked. It's not in the shot long, but I mean, it's really noticeable. It was really funny. That sounds just like them. Montero gives Ryan the slip, stepping into a magic cabinet, then vanishing by the time Ryan opens it. Why is there a question mark on the inside of one of the cabinet doors, but not both? And why so dark it's so hard to see? If your production department couldn't get two done in time, why not remove the one? It doesn't even look good and adds nothing, it's just distracting. Meanwhile, Mickey has a heart-to-heart -heart with Montero's daughter, who gives one of the best performances of the episode, really playing the conflict between loving her dad despite his cruel treatment. That's Lila, right? Uh, yeah. And what did you think of her performance? Yeah, definitely the best of the episode. She was really good, wasn't she? Yeah, she was the best. I think, uh, once again, best performance goes to a day player. Yep, definitely. I, and it's usually the villain, too. Yeah, good point. Which I feel like is people really get into that, you know? Yeah, it is every actor's favorite thing is to play the villain, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <sighs> in continuing character assassination of Jack, when Montero enters, he hides in the repurposed cabinet of Doom, a box comprised almost entirely of holes, and even sticks his hands out the cyclopene armholes. Okay. <laughs> Cyclopean? Cy oh, not cyclopene? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, our audience is going to know it's pronounced cyclopean. It is cyclopene. Cyclopean. Okay. And I just said it wrong. It's cyclopean. Yeah. Yeah. You are wrong. Mm. And even sticks his hands out the cyclopean armholes, a.k.a. cyclopean. Let's go ahead and just change that to sticks his hands out the paisan armholes. <laughs> Let's pause here to discuss this cabinet. I skipped it earlier, but the whole point of the enormous openings on the sides is so the performer can stretch their arms out, proving to the audience there's someone inside. But Fatim didn't bother back when he bought the farm. And I can't figure out any good reason why, except no one on the production understood that's why they exist. Ditto the face hole in the front. The hole would work properly, except the cabinet is tipped back about 30 degrees, so I doubt the audience can see the face of the performer. What I'm saying is, if the show hired a magic consultant, no one on the production got the memo. Also, they did not hire a magic consultant. Although, I do get the feeling at least one of the writers was legitimately into the occult and quite possibly dabbled in magic tricks as well. The purpose of Jack choosing this as his hiding spot is, of course, some fake-out tension as Ryan enters and leans on the lever that brings down the swords. The real tension is wondering if Ryan is about to do something stupid, and given his track record, fair. In a rare compliment to Ryan, he both comes up with a good excuse for encountering Montero in the prop room. They both have equipment to check, and justifies following him when Montero calls him out. He wants an autograph. Way to play to the man's obvious vanity, Ryan. You truly are the lion. After their encounter, after Montero specifically states he's about to prepare the Cabinet of Doom, aka Coffin of Blood, he just leaves, allowing Jack to escape. Wow, what a lucky break. Jack verifies the sword blades are sharp after escaping. 
Hey, show. That's not how tension works. There's an order of operations. I'm not sure exactly what's going on in the next scene between Mickey, Ryan, and Jack because the lines don't fit the characters. Jack says he was too afraid to speak up when Ryan nearly killed him, which I choose not to believe. Plus, he also points out he was, you know, hiding, so didn't want to reveal himself. Very true, so why is he leading with being afraid? Then I think Mickey challenges him by suggesting what Ryan did was brave. I don't see how, and also, show, are you proving Hill Street right? Is Mickey becoming fond of Ryan the Lion? I don't even want to think about... How about lightning? Let's discuss lighting. Oh, lighting, my bad. Actually, when, when you said that, I didn't even question it. I was like, oh, that seems weird, but yeah, it does say lightning. But you, you, your performance was so powerful, Hill Street. You convinced <laughs> me. That's good acting. Yeah, I was confident. Confidence is everything. How about lighting? Let's discuss lighting. This scene is lit more cinematically than most of the series, and I pin that on a location that doesn't allow them to easily light from above, so they're forced to light from the sides, probably with fewer lights, creating a stronger contrast between the key and fill sides, giving more depth to the actors' faces in particular. Would have been nice if they'd finished the job and put the key, or stronger, light on the dumb side of the camera, letting us see more of the darker portion of their faces. Oh well. In a creepy, handheld, over-the-shoulder shot, we follow a mysterious figure into Jack's dressing room to take a nail file to the key he'll need to escape his straitjacket. After some filler shots in which Jack is missing and Mickey and Ryan look for him, he steps out onto the stage wearing purple, satin parachute pants, a straitjacket, and a black gimp mask that might or might not have eye and mouth holes. Well, that's rock bottom. No more making fun of this show's wardrobe after this. As his assistant, Mickey announces Jack is about to perform the Pendulum of Death, in which he'll escape from the straitjacket while suspended upside down from a burning rope over a bed of spikes. God damn, did they cheap out for this one. Fans of MST3K? That's the shorthand for Mystery Science Theater 3000. Oh, gotcha. Fans of MST3K, take a look at this shot. Take a good, long look. They just didn't care. The bed of spikes is nothing but a spiked board placed atop a production road case tipped on its side. How can I be so sure? The case's wheels are on the side, so it takes two stagehands to slide it since they can't roll it. To once again quote James Rolfe, What were they thinking? Clearly that Jack would be high enough they could roll it in, but that didn't work out on the day, to borrow a film production term. And really, a road case? You couldn't build a proper base? You couldn't afford a little particle board, some black paint, and four casters? You couldn't afford some fabric, at least, to hide the road case? I promise you, there's already some duve time? A uh, duvetine. Duvetine. It's a specific film production term. Oh. I know, you, I know you were really beating yourself up. I was. I was crying. I promise you, there's already some duvetine somewhere on that set. Go borrow that. Speaking of new bottoms, this is the production department's. <laughs> Did you notice any of that with respect to that particular stunt? I honestly did not. I mean, I, I knew it looked cheap, but you know more about a lot of the stuff you're talking about in that scene than I do. What did you think of Jack's wardrobe? It was, it was hilarious. Hilarious. Those pants killed me. Yeah, I don't know what they were thinking. I know. They were hilarious. I think they could use you as their wardrobe mistress, Hill Street. I think so, too. I have a lot of things to say to them. You have notes. Also, they've dropped the name Pendulum of Death several times over the episode. Each time it rubbed me the wrong way, and each time I bit my tongue, because I hadn't seen it in action yet. Now I'm vindicated. Although, Jack hanging from a rope technically meets the dictionary definition of a pendulum, I feel like the spirit of the definition implies the suspended mass will be set in motion, which Jack most definitely isn't. And back to the bed of spikes. 
After Mickey ignites the rope, she calls for Jack to be hoisted up, and now I can at least understand why the road case was on its side. She couldn't reach. That's why Jack had to be so close to the ground. Okay, but here's an easy fix. Roll in the bed of spikes after he's hoisted. If you think about it, it's even more dramatic that way. David Copperfield, if you need a magic consultant, give me a ring. Apparently, retrieving the key and opening the padlock is something the audience is allowed to see, I guess. I mean, I suppose at a distance they wouldn't know what was happening, so I can justify it. But, oh no, the key we saw filed earlier snaps in two! Mickey and Ryan apparently see this happen, or at least suspect something bad is happening, yet do nothing to abort the trick. So the rope snaps and Jack plunges to his death. Talk about a dramatic cut to commercial break. Or it would be if they didn't ADR Bob Hope's muttered call an ambulance over Mickey's dramatic scream. <laughs> Your sarcasm on these last few lines has been wonderful, I have to say. <laughs> commercial break! Some shows have a monster of the week. This series has a curio of the week. And so do we. Believe me, no one paid us for the following endorsements. And, once they hear the show, it's more likely they'll pay us to retract them. We just want to share some cool things with you, while simultaneously using our platform to give a little free promotion to those without a massive advertising budget. So Hill Street, what is your Curio of the Week? My Curio of the Week is an interesting one. It's cold and flu season, right? Everyone's sick all the time. Actually, my sister's pediatrician said this is the worst cold and flu season he has seen in 40 years. So my curio of the week is something called Neomed Sinus Rinse. I know, I've been told that you're supposed to rinse out your sinuses. It will help prevent you from getting sick. And I've thought about this every year, but I've never done it. And there's a lot of different types of sinus rinses. There's neti pots and different things you can do. But this one was recommended to me. And it's like this bottle. And you fill it up with distilled water and salt. And you squeeze a bottle in one nostril. And the water goes up through your sinus passages and out the other nostril. And it's kind of gnarly. I'm not going to lie. But if you're trying not to get sick, you've got to do it. It clears out all your sinus passages. It helps get all that congestion and junk out of your nose. And I was talking to someone recently that I was in a show with, another singer, and she said that she's done this sinus rinse every year for the past few years and that she never gets sick anymore. And my ENT said, yeah, if you do those sinus rinses, it helps get all of those germs out of your sinuses and that you should be doing it every day. And that if you do, your chances of getting sick go way down. So that is my curio of the week. I recommend this. It's called Neil Med Sinus Rinse, N-E-I-L-M-E-D, Neil Med Sinus Rinse. I highly recommend it. Since I started doing it, it has helped my sinuses and my congestion so much. I wish I'd been doing it the past few years. I probably would have gotten sick a lot less. It's kind of freaky the first time you do it, feeling that water go through your sinuses and come out the other side. But yeah, I highly recommend it if you're trying not to get sick. This one is bittersweet, folks, because my curio of the week is the Panacoken House, technically Hoos, H-U-I-S, located at 4995 Excelsior Boulevard in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. You don't find many Dutch restaurants in America, much less a chain, much less a place so painfully casual about its Dutch heritage it feels like your favorite pair of well-worn clogs. If Denny's had originated in Amsterdam, this would be the result. Order what you want, but don't leave without at least trying the traditional apple panikoken, which you might know as either a Dutch baby or German pancake. Yes, panikoken hoos translates to pancake house, and panikokens are their specialty. If you want a savory one, go with a metwurst and gouda. If you prefer sweet and have already had the traditional apple, 
Might I suggest the bananas faster, or, when offered, the pecan cranberry with rum sauce. The final holdout of the once mighty Panacokan Empire, I would guess this humble eatery isn't long for this world. So please go while you still can, and when you do, have a traditional apple Panacokan for me. Wonder what the audience thought as their 1am commercials for Metamucil and the Columbia House Record Club were followed by a bloody corpse impaled on the bed of nails. I like to believe it was. Why is that mutilated cadaver on an overturned road case? Ryan removes the gimp mask to reveal the deceased is actually Tommy, the aspiring magician and Jack's doppelganger. Yeah, that's the funny thing. They look so similar that when they took the mask off, I was like, oh, it really is Marshak. And then I was like, oh, no, it's not. It just looks like him. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, well, dust your hands on that one. He's done with the show. Yep. I was like, oh, they got rid of him in a really weird way. You weren't joking around during the crystal ball when you <laughs> talked about releasing all ordinance on recurring characters. Huh? Nope. Get rid of them all. Someone new every episode. If they're going to kill Jack. Anyone's fair game. Yep. Nuts to him. Let's just do uh, the aspiring magician and Jack Doppelganger. You're so picky. <laughs> Ryan removes the gimp mask to reveal the deceased is actually Tommy, the aspiring magician and Jack Doppelganger. Moments later, Jack shows up to explain Tommy locked him in a closet. Hey, show. Picks or it didn't happen. <laughs> they have an awfully casual conversation about who the prime suspect is, given their proximity to the recently deceased. But I suppose time is of the essence. Wait a minute. No, it isn't. I mean, the police are going to show up, everyone will be interrogated, the magic contest will be postponed until God knows when. What's that, show? Oh, you're not doing any of that? Just business as usual, huh? Well, Canada is basically international waters. No laws save the law of survival. So I guess I buy it. Ryan accuses Montero, but Jack proclaims him too obvious? Is this more Jack character assassination, or is the man just too smart for his own good? Jack, the murderer, is playing checkers, buddy, not chess. Occams? Occams? Occams Razor. Occams Razor? Oh. Yeah. Occams Razor and all that. But he's an old white man, so off they go to investigate Miranda. Cut to a dressing room door being thrown open. Ever hear of knocking? And the gang discovers Miranda hanging from the ceiling. As Miranda's wig is askew, Ryan the Lion pulls it off to reveal Miranda is actually a D-mustachioed Alton Brown. Nice job with that word. Thank you. In a moment that eviscerates everyone's character, they all express surprise about who it is, but not his current deceased state, and they certainly make no effort to save him. He's not even kept off screen. And every master shot is a debate why there's sawdust in the man's wig. His corpse is just hanging there, swaying ever so slightly on an errant breeze. And I know I said I was done bagging on wardrobe, but the man's death is made all the more indignant by Mickey's assistant costume and Ryan the Lion's bright yellow t-shirt for Illinois State. Mickey has what looks like two green apple Tootsie Pops dangling from her ears, and I assume Ryan wants to make it clear Castleton was his backup school. Uh, what did you think of Mickey's earrings? They were bizarre. Okay, so I wasn't the only one? No, totally bizarre. I like your description. Oh, thank you. Yeah, even by 80s standards, I can see no precedent. Yeah. I mean, I did not think they could possibly be more crass than the way they handled the previous death, but the second death, moments later, just blows the first one out of the water. This show is unrelenting. Fortunately, a new magician pokes his head in looking for Alton Brown and immediately takes off running, meaning we can finally leave the dead man in peace. Ryan the Lion finally gets to play the tough guy, really manhandling this new magician while drilling him with questions. Do you finally feel like a big man, Ryan, shaking down this cowardly renaissance fair magician? 
Even Jack gets in on it, vaguely threatening him with murder, which, yeah, he has every reason to believe you'll go through with. Why do they suspect this guy at all? He's the one person they know who thought Alton Brown was still alive, so he's not the murderer. From his point of view, you guys probably are. The interrogation is long and convoluted, but through Alton Brown, he learned Montero got his hands on both the cabinet and the murder monolith, possibly after killing Fatim, so they're blackmailing Montero to headline the show. That doesn't make sense since Bob Hope picks the headliner, not Montero, but it is what it is. This episode must have been short, because this scene ends one or two lines too late. The magician informs them someone had to be inside the murder monolith. The subtext is, he's informing them someone has to die. We cut to Jack and Mickey drinking in that gruesome revelation, and it's the perfect time to leave the scene. But Jack softly whispers, curse. Okay, great. And we're out, right? Nope. Instead, we cut back to the magician asking, what? With the earnestness of... Oh, my bad. You're bad about what? He asked it earnestly, so I need to sound more earnest when I say it. No, you're, that was a great... You, you were so earnest. <laughs> you're so earnest, Hill Street, and you don't even know it. Oh, my God. I didn't even know it. Instead, we cut back to the magician asking, What? With the earnestness of a child inquiring about Santa Claus. It's genuinely touching. You know what? You're right. That was even better. Yeah, right? It was even more earnest. I just didn't know the context. The bar was high, but it still feels good to clear it. Felt so fucking good. Then we cut back to Jack, scowling like an English bulldog who barks nothing. Honestly, what do you guys have against this poor magician, and why do you include extra lines here, but not in the two other scenes in which they were desperately needed? Later, Mickey laments only having 30 minutes until showtime. Really? Despite two deaths in the last few hours? Magicians are hardcore. Maybe you shouldn't offer $100,000 prizes if this is the result. Remember how this episode began, with two characters silently staring at each other for 30 seconds before speaking? Well, the show once again wants to top itself, with a camera move across people getting the stage ready to land on Montero's daughter talking to a stage manager. At least, she should be talking to the stage manager, but she's late on her cue, so the camera already sees her when she steps forward onto her mark and begins speaking. Again, why not write three more lines, begin this dialogue off-screen, and avoid this amateur night filmmaking? Mickey talks her into seeing the murder monolith, and off they go. Credit where it's due. When they head down into a wine cellar, everything important is well lit, but it's still dark enough to justify the use of a flashlight. Very professional. This might be the best episode thus far regarding lighting. Mickey practically kidnaps herself by stepping inside the murder monolith for no reason, despite it being caked with blood, allowing Montero's daughter to lock her inside. For you see, irony of ironies, it's Montero's daughter who is pulling the strings. The Mr. Sim of this episode, Montero himself is blissfully unaware his daughter is a psychopath. Not sure how the locking mechanism on the murder monolith works. There doesn't appear to be one, yet Mickey is supposedly trapped. Also, a pyramid-shaped jewel on top lights up, creating the red light inside the box. For real magic, it's oddly utilitarian. The acoustic dampening on the murder monolith is amazing. Mickey sounds like she's trapped 100 feet underground, and when she pounds the inside, her blows thud like she's hitting solid stone and cannot be heard outside. But that begs the question, why does young Mistress Montero monologue about her own evilness for a solid minute if Mickey can't hear her? Kudos to her, though. I mean, it was terrible writing, but she still gives a good delivery. I know, she even does a, ha ha ha, I am evil. And her own slap to the side of the monolith calls its construction into serious question, as the actress manages to push flush a portion of the wall that had been protruding slightly. It's not quite wobbling headstones in Ed Wood's cemetery, but it's not great. 
Commercial break. Nice. <laughs> Nicely restrained. Thank you. <laughs> if you like the horror genre as much as we do, you can preview the horror comic book Requiem for a Psychopath right now for free at the Interdemon Entertainment website. Imagine a world in which horror film slashers are real. Then imagine a troubled teen bringing one out of retirement to help him take revenge on his bullies. It was written by me and drawn by friend of the show, Stephen Yu. Again, that's Requiem for a Psychopath on the Inner Demon Entertainment website. And, if you dig it, please either review and rate it five stars on Amazon, or don't rate and review it at all. Ratings of less than five stars send the algorithm into murder mode for some reason. Thanks. I hope you enjoy it. Back from commercial, Mickey is still pleading for her life. Jack begs Bob Hope to postpone Montero's act, but Hope is old-school Hollywood, baby. Since he doesn't consider the two recent deaths murders, the show must go on. Until now, I didn't think the show was going to comment on Alton Brown dressing as a woman, especially since there was no reason for him to do so in terms of the story. But now I think the reason was simply to imply he was crazy and therefore suicidal, as Bob Hope mentions his identity crisis, as well as him having a few screws loose. So, suicide justification and, to a lesser extent, just another red herring to throw off the audience and our heroes. Although I don't think we were ever as afraid of Alton in his female persona nearly as much as we were in his male. Ryan notices sawdust on young Mistress Montero's dress, because apparently no one gives them last looks before they step out in front of the TV cameras. How did I do with the uh, female and male persona section? Are we going to get canceled? <laughs> no, 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 you're fine. You're fine. <laughs> That's funny. That's really funny. I mean, it's accurate. Things were different then. And doing that kind of thing, you'd be considered crazy. Well, it's doubly tough because not only do you have to consider the standards of our day, but watching this show puts you in the mindset of that day. Right. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Doing something like that back then would be considered unstable and crazy. Pretty much. It's totally different than it is now. Yeah. Somehow, just being in the wine cellar is enough to get sawdust all over your back. Also, why is there sawdust in a wine cellar? Until now, I assumed the sawdust was being used to tie the killer to that ridiculous stuff Dummy used to demonstrate the Cabinet of Doom, but they specifically shoot down that connection during this conversation for the far less likely state of affairs that the wine cellar is full of sawdust for reasons. My explanation actually attempted to justify that stupid dummy, but nope, this show thinks it knows better. Bob Hope steps out to announce Montero and thanks the fabulous Rossini. Hey, another, uh, fuck you. Paizon. Paizon. However uh. you want to pronounce it, <laughs> it's fine by me. Hey, another Paizon! French and English magician. <laughs> French and English musicians get Flawless. all the credit. No, no notes. Moving on. <laughs> got it in one. Paisan. French and English magicians get all the credit, but you got to admit the Italians are well represented. Come to think of it, I don't think Montero is supposed to be Italian, but his name says otherwise. He informs the audience his coffin of blood is both famous and infamous. I know those words aren't synonyms, but pick one, guy. Clearly, the theater they shot in had at least one balcony, but wasn't very deep, because this is the highest angle shot I've seen, omitting drone footage. But the moment is dramatic, and the angle interesting, so it works. For reasons I'm super not clear on, Montero steals Fatim's patter, offering the same $50,000 to anyone who can survive the coffin. And, as with Fatim, this is never followed up on. Neither man asks for volunteers or lists magicians who turn them down or anything. They just perform the trick. So, what the hell? 
And now that I think about it, did you just admit you stole not only this trick, but the offer from Fatim? First, your fellow magicians would crucify you for stealing his act. Second, why did you change the name of the act and the design of the cabinet if you want to be connected to him? Even though doing that, you know, implicates you of murder? As Montero climbs into the coffin, down in the wine cellar, Jack speculates wildly that prying out the gem from the murder monolith might open the door. Okay. And to accomplish that noble goal, he uses a broken wine bottle? This is the prop I was referring to earlier that I suspect Ryan the Lion was playing with simply because it was already lying around on set. Although I'll concede, this bottle breaks in an alarmingly realistic way, right down to a dangling piece being flung away when Jack flicks his wrist. It's only as Montero's daughter is sealing him in the coffin that I realize her solid magenta pantsuit isn't very flashy for a magician's assistant. Looks more like she's about to host a paternity test-centric afternoon talk show. Do you concur? Yeah, good point. Didn't think about it at the time, but yes, excellent point. The music builds as we intercut between the stage and the wine cellar, but in a bizarre bit of editing, the music drops out on one cut like this edit was assembled by Dario Argento. That, coupled with the blasé manner in which Jack asks Ryan for his flashlight, really kills the tension they were trying to cultivate. You know how this goes, but you totally don't know how it goes. Of course, they get Mickey out of the monolith just before the swords drop on stage, killing Montero. But Jack never gets the gem loose. He saws at it with the bottle, not sure what that was ever going to accomplish. It suddenly turns green. Okay. Then Mickey bursts out. Also, Montero spits out a mouthful of vibrant red blood. The swords are bloody, his mouth is bloody, his hand is bloody. We're talking Christopher Lee as Dracula amounts of blood here. Again, show, I can't believe you got away with this on network TV back then. Maybe mash crawled so you could... Maybe mash crawled so you could run? Was that almost a but laugh I heard? Wondering. What's, what's that? Were you laughing at your own delivery or were you laughing at the concept of the blood and mash? I'm laughing at the, the, the line. That's funny. Oh, thank you. Have you watched MASH? Oh, yeah. My parents used to love that show. Oh, okay. Yeah, you saw it growing up. It was just kind of always on his background. Yeah. Yep. Same boat here. <laughs> but now I'm wondering, why so demure back in episode two with a monk who fell a hundred feet onto a patio set and another run through by a flying guillotine blade? Is it wrong that I know enough about knife injuries that my first impulse upon seeing a concerned crowd pull ten swords out of the man is to shout, No! Leave them in! <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Good point. Thank you. I suppose you would know that, working in healthcare and all. Yeah. Never take them out. Oh my god. Hey, real grief from the gang at this death. Got it in three. Leslie Donaldson? I believe so. Weird spelling. I'm really guessing at that one. I have no idea, but that's how they... I believe that's how, how it was spelled on. <laughs> yeah, she's Southern. And Leslie Donaldson, the actress portraying young Mistress Montero, is absolutely playing to the back of the house. Good times. Commercial break! That is the theater expression, is it not? When they want you to play something huge? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh my god, her shrieking was like, yeah, that was top notch. I was like, good god, she's just going and going. Epic. Scream queen. Welcome to Crystal Ball, the segment where we gaze into the future and let time make fools of us all. Do you think Lieutenant Fishbein from episode four, A Cup of Time, will come back? At this point, I'm going to be surprised if essentially anybody comes back because that really hasn't been happening, which is a shame because they have some really interesting people that they should and could bring back. I've been anticipating a lot of people coming back that so far haven't. and They've just been kind of plowing ahead. And I don't know that this show has like the foresight to bring people back. And I like, you know, I think some of the shows that I've watched that are written amazingly well and they 
they have people come back and they plan for it really well and I just don't know I feel like this show is very I don't know how to put it but like they 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 write that episode and then they move on so I, I don't know I mean it would be really cool if he came back I think that would be fun like we talked about Birdie coming back too which would be awesome but I, I don't know I, I at this point I'm putting my thoughts I, I'm I'm saying that no one's coming back really other than the regulars at this point I just don't think they're doing I don't think they're on that train whoa hot take blanket statement you think no one is coming back you're negating all future crystal ball questions right now <laughs> If I ask, is this character coming back? Is that character coming back? Blanket answer, nope. That's where I'm standing this week. I don't know. That's how I'm feeling. I just, every episode I'm expecting some throwbacks to other things that they're not doing. Like I said, they have a brilliant opportunity to like have those rock songs come back from Cup of Time. Just have them, you know, casually dispersed into the episodes as a fun throwback. And they're not even doing that. Well, yes, and I've actually been thinking about the fact that that was a brilliant suggestion you had, that they bring back the music. I did not think of that myself, and that was really a great idea, and it does seem like a missed opportunity that, at least so far, they haven't. I don't think they're going to bring back Lady Di's music, but in terms of character, part of me thinks that they won't, but that's just such a strange thing to do. You'd think over 72 episodes, three seasons, you'd find actors you like, people you like working with, you know, um, even if you weren't originally intending to bring them back, you might throw them a bone or just reach out. They might inspire you to maybe change your plans a little bit. And it seems like, frankly, the obvious thing, maybe even the cliche thing to do, but I mean, it's cliche for a reason. There's a reason why shows do that. However, this show consistently zigs when you expect it to zag but if i have to put money on it i'm going to say that bringing back a foil like him even at just the concept of having a law enforcement character that's maybe actively working against them seems like such a no-brainer that i'm gonna to have to say i just can't imagine over the entire rest of this show 66 episodes left i'm gonna say i think he comes back that's partly wishful thinking on my part and uh, I think I said Birdie would come back. So, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say Fishbine comes back. We'll see. Bold statement, I know. Mm-hmm. Did you have anything else for the crystal ball? I mean, I don't know what else you can do. You, you just blanket it. I just destroyed it. Carpet bomb. The idea of characters coming back. No, I think my work is done here. Wow, when you watch the show without commercials, the change in tone is jarring. Back in Curious Goods, Jack is adding a chain to Ryan the Lion's straight jacket while singing a cowboy ditty about not being chained down. Oh, so now we get Ryan as Houdini, but not last episode where it would have made sense? And again, as with episode 3, Cupid's Quiver, we made it all the way to the final scene without any intercousin public displays of affection, only to have Ryan the Lion flirt with Mickey and her flirt right back while laying her head on his shoulder. You were right, Hill Street. I didn't want to believe it, but I can't deny my own eyes. Thank you. Real shame, because Ryan's joke about the straitjacket, you got anything in a 40 regular, isn't laugh-out-loud funny, but probably the most charming joke I've ever heard him make. But that joke is sandwiched between more familial flirting, this time with sadomasochistic undertones, and the form of Ryan asking Mickey to tighten the straitjacket and her all-too-happy-to-comply. If this episode doesn't end soon, I'm leaving. Jack, always the wisest person in the room, suggests they wrap it up. Here, here, second, all in favor, say aye! As Ryan asks Mickey to time him, they speak over each other, and it's just left in. (laughs) Ryan can't get loose, proclaims it isn't funny anymore, and we revert back to a freeze-frame ending. A freeze-frame and an ending that leaves a million questions on the table. Important questions, such as, was young Mistress Montero brought to justice? Why did she try to kill Jack? To win the contest? Okay, but why him specifically, given all the other participants? 
How did she kill Alton Brown? Why did she stage it as a suicide? And how did she hang his corpse from the ceiling all on her own? How did that Renaissance Fair magician fit into her scheme, if at all? Did they retrieve the murder monolith? If so, how? I'm not even going to ask any questions about police involvement because this show has convinced me, just as English cops don't typically carry guns, Canada must be so peaceful they simply don't need cops or a legal system. Hey, this episode did have a magic consultant. I don't even feel bad about being wrong because guess what? It was one Rick Rossini. Could I get one more pass stressing the, his last name? It was one Rick Rossini. Oh, sorry. I choked. <laughs> <laughs> you pan- you it panicked. Was, <laughs> literally choked. <laughs> I panicked. Oh, take a deep breath. <laughs> I mean, Repeat your mantra. It was one Rick Rossini. You know what? Maybe a little pause after Rick. I think that would do it. It was one Rick Rossini. Excellent. <laughs> I thought maybe you are going to take another pass, but no, you're clearly done with it. You're over it. <laughs> I'm over it. It's funny. Well, at least I was right about... Uh, oh, Pison. Well, at least I was right about Pisons being well represented. Pisons. Well, at least... <laughs> Well, at least I was right about Paisans being well represented. <laughs> nope. Nope, I'm picking one. You can't just pronounce it every way the word could possibly be pronounced. I'm picking one. Oh, God. I'm picking the worst one. Of course you are. Just play that whole clip of me going, Paisan, Paisan, Paisan. <laughs> they actually found a non-fictional one. I'm guessing that was an homage to him earlier in the episode. I wonder if he cameoed in one of the crowd scenes. And I see stunt coordination was handled by the Stunt Team Incorporated. Gotta guess they are not Italian. With a name that creative, they must be British. I'm sorry you're sick. That sucks. Oh, I'm sure it'll be seamless when I edit this together. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not involved in a show right now but i'm directing a show that auditions in april and there's so much work to front load and i had to make the schedule which i sent it to the choreographer and the music director and i was like i know it looks like a crazy person did the schedule a crazy person did do the schedule it looks so crazy and it is crazy but i I did the best i could the show directed by a madman do you dare come see it yeah (laughs) literally like the schedules is is insane but yeah i'm I'm so excited for this show it's like all i can talk about right now i I know i'm being annoying with everyone in my life but i'm just i'm so excited for it and i hope that we get an incredible turnout for auditions what show is it death takes a holiday have you ever seen meet joe black with brad pitt it's basically that story brad pitt and anthony hopkins yep so i'm extremely excited gotcha but you're and you're already deep into it oh great i am i know well i i'm just making it such a big production like the set build is going to be two levels with a bunch of staircases and stuff so we have to get started on everything so early oh you're setting up the silver package they're gonna be banners there's gonna be trivia questions there's gonna be prizes <laughs> exactly yep you get a reward pass <laughs> Exactly. Uh, Hill Street Art <laughs> Theater doesn't even offer those, so I'm not sure what you're promoting here. <laughs> Quiet, you. We're taking this theater in a new direction. <laughs> you know me. I go big on everything. All right, you do. <laughs> Let's go ahead and dive into our probably, or maybe not, one-time-only segment, 80s Gay. 80s Gay. I don't want to anchor you too much on this idea. I want your interpretation without me framing it too much first. But based on the name of that segment, did you feel there was anything particularly gay in this episode? Hmm. Anything jump out at you? Any implied homosexuality? We've had gayer episodes, that's for sure. (laughs) I'm going to take that crushing silence as a no. No, nothing really jumped out at me. So we 
had uh, a man, Robert, dressing as a woman. Right. Not gay in and of itself. Something different. I understand that. Yeah. But what about him in conjunction, or her, or they, uh, in conjunction with the Renaissance magician? How so? Maybe I'm connecting dots that should not be, but that Renaissance magician serves no other function and, to my knowledge, is connected to no other character in the story. He's only connected to Robert slash Miranda. Right. And he is... All right, I'm just going to go ahead and say what I have to say, and I'll probably heavily edit this later. Yeah, do it. You're not going to offend me. I know. I'm just I'm future-proofing myself, which is a bad idea. I guess I should just speak freely and then use common sense later. Yeah. I hope, hope this initial recording never gets out. <laughs> I'm speaking in the present about something made in the past, so I'm speaking through the mindset of someone back then. But you remember in the script I was talking about how easily bullied he was by Jack and Ryan? Right. And the reason they were able to do that is basically because he came across as so cowardly, which is something that stories, you know, in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, uh, 20-teens, etc., would kind of tend to do with gay characters if they had them at all. Uh I presume everyone else that sees Miranda performing simply thinks that, oh, that's a female magician. Yeah. It's hard to say because no one comments on it specifically. But Robert is a character who is known to the Renaissance magician and is also dressed as a woman. And the Renaissance magician doesn't comment on that. That could just be poor writing, just as the Renaissance magician does not comment on the fact that Robert is dead. That, in conjunction with the fact that the Renaissance magician is portrayed as very timid to the point of being cowardly, just had me wondering, are they implying that there's a gay relationship with those two characters? Not that it serves the story in any way, but again, you could only do so much at the time on television. So was that a little attempt to have a gay character in there? Maybe in the best way that they thought they could get away with that in the 80s. It would seem offensive by modern standards, but at the time, that might have been the writers, the creators trying to show a little bit of inclusion. Hard to say. Any thoughts on anything I've said while I catch my breath and try to wander out of this minefield? Yeah. No, I mean, what you're saying makes makes sense. But, I mean, it, it's equally possible, too, though, that you are looking into something where there isn't... I mean, without a doubt, uh, I would say Robert slash Miranda... There's a good chance that they thought of that character as gay, mm-hmm. I would guess. But the the Renaissance character, it's hard to say if they had connected him that way. But also, I see where you're coming from. Like I, I hadn't thought about it when you're when you've j- only when you only watch it the one time. It's uh, there's a lot that you probably miss, um, in that way or things that you don't think of your first watch through. But I see where you're coming from. Like everything you're saying, I'm not like, no, that doesn't make sense. Like it does make sense. Yeah, and I'm not claiming this definitively. That's why I'm bringing it up as a topic of discussion. This next thing I'm going to say is real speculation on my part. I don't know that much about the history of Canada's media industry, but I feel like in general, Canada was at least a bit more progressive in terms of gay rights than America. If that was their intention, they made it incredibly subtle. They put almost nothing in there to imply that, but you know, it's possible. They did, but other than maybe uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and Revenge of the Nerds, they had to be pretty subtle back then. Mm-hmm. There's the rub. 
did you need to rewatch Supernatural or did you remember the Magician episode? Oh, I remember it. I think I've seen it at least six times. When I proposed it, I was like, oh, you know, that, that might be a fun thing to check out. You know, who knows? Maybe there'll be some overlap between that episode and um, Friday the 13th, the series. And it turns out, yeah, there was a little bit of overlap, by which I mean the entire plot. Yeah, and honestly, I think that all the time when I'm watching this show, there's a lot of similarities between them. Like, it's 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 weird. It's like Supernatural watched Friday the 13th and was like, let's do this show, but do it better. <laughs> yeah, up until now, I was like, well, they're, they're superficial. You know, there's certain beats that uh, this type of show is going to hit, etc. But watching those two side by side, was it was just stunning. The whole death transference magic, the trick worked the exact same way. And it's like, okay, the second time was different in Supernatural because it was a rope strangulation. Like, okay, I'm like, that's cool. I wonder what they're going to do for the third one. And then for the third one, they went right back to the table of death, just like Friday the 13th. Yep. Might have even been the exact same number of swords dropping through. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's just like the vibe of the episode two. I don't know. You don't know who's setting up the trick and the magician doesn't know that their tricks are killing people, you know? Yeah, exactly. No, good. that's a, it's a good point because Montero doesn't know. It's actually his daughter. So, yeah. Even then, you have uh, um, a red herring in terms of who's actually culpable. And uh, I guess that actually prompts me to ask, uh, to the best of your knowledge, no one involved with the show has ever cited Friday the 13th, the series, as an inspiration, have they? I don't think so, no. I think that they, the two original writers, I think that they came up with the whole concept of the show on their own. So I, it might just be a coincidence, but they, they, those two episodes are very similar. And do they frequently go to antique stores or have to track down um, purchased items, I guess? Um, antique stores, yeah. They, they, I mean, like, especially with the cult stuff, they'll go to antique stores to buy, like, guns that look like the cult or, or like, maybe antique stores for spells, things they need in spells. I can't say it's as frequent as it is on Friday the 13th. And they're not specifically tracking down something they believe is haunted and evil that people just don't realize has supernatural powers? Um, haunted objects is a big part of the show. Usually, though, the haunted object is, like, in someone's possession. Yeah, they've already started out in the hands of someone using them for evil. Right. And, like, there's a character named Bella in the first few seasons on and off, and she's somebody who, like, buys and sells haunted or steals and sells haunted objects so there's some antique store stuff with her where would you rate uh that episode of supernatural just broadly speaking i know there's so many episodes but would you put it in like top middle or bottom Eh, i'd say middle it's definitely not one of my favorites but it's not one that i like dread watching by any means yeah that was my feeling i would put it in the middle but i would still say it's elevated above Friday the 13th and that the plot with the magicians actually supports the themes and the characters and what they're going through. Right. Uh, Sam, it seems like, reflecting on, do I really still want to be doing this when I'm 60 years old or do I want to maybe take my life in a different direction? And it seems to not only support the themes, but I mean, really the plot, um, in addition to the themes in the character, where he makes a decision at the end of that episode, right? He's going to work with a uh, demon that he's working with. Oh, yeah, Ruby. Speaking of positivity, and good acting. How about uh, Leslie Donaldson as uh, Lila Montero in the episode of Friday the 13th? Yeah, she was my favorite. She was mine too. I thought she was given some really difficult uh, material to work with. Some of those villain monologues. Pretty ham-fisted and clunky in terms of the writing and like why she's even delivering it to someone who probably can't hear her. 
And she made it work. Yeah, people are getting really into the villain roles on this show. I've been impressed. Most of the villains have been really good. Yeah, and I mean, she played a, I think she played a nice range, too, from hammy, almost Bond-esque villain to, like, the quieter scenes when she was clearly hurt that she couldn't please her father. She really sold it. Yeah, I agree. I really enjoyed her performance. She took on a really difficult task not making that cheesy, and she did a good job. When I was researching what some of the supporting cast might have done, a lot of them have done a lot of television, including uh, some still working today, including Leslie Donaldson, a lot of it. Of course, Canadian television, the actor that played Fatim, was in a couple episodes of a show that I've been meaning to bring up for a while now, also Canadian, also from roughly this time period. It's called The Littlest Hobo. <laughs> have you ever heard of this, Hill Street? I have not, but that's, that's hilarious. It is a dog show, like a Benji or a Lassie, but unlike the American ones, where the dog shows up and basically just barks, and then everyone says what's wrong and follows the dog to the source of the problem, and then the humans take it from there, The Littlest Hobo gets stuff done. <laughs> he is incredibly active to a fault, but it's given me like a unique window into Canadian television and I guess the Canadian mindset where they really seem to be all about first priority, make it interesting. And then if we have time, maybe have it make sense. Mm -hmm. Where just to give you an example, in episode one of The Littlest Hobo, the hobo finds himself in a situation where there's the pilot of a plane who's trying to deliver medical supplies to a dying child. He has a doctor with him who basically provided the, uh, the antidote to this poison. And then uh, the littlest hobo is on this, this little plane uh, flying the doctor to uh, the hospital where the boy is, essentially. And they're like, oh, we can't land at the airport we need to land at. So we're going to divert to this other airport. But that means we're going to be just far enough away that like we won't be able to get the medicine there in time. And the, the littlest hobo picks up a parachute in his jaws. And from this, the pilot infers... Oh, he's suggesting he parachutes the medicine to the child. And that is their plan. They run with that. They strap the littlest hobo, a dog, into a parachute, give the dog the medicine, <laughs> and then push him out of the plane. And he parachutes down and then runs to this hospital I believe he's never been to where somehow he just knows the child is and delivers the medicine just in time. Oh my God. It makes absolutely no sense and yet it is completely thrilling and fun to watch. <laughs> oh my God, that's hilarious. <laughs> the actor who played uh, Fatim, August Schellenberg, I believe, he did some episodes of The Littlest Hobo, so I was checking out that connection all while blissfully unaware that our very own Cracker Jack Marshak, Chris Wiggins, is in not one, but two episodes of The Littlest Hobo. <laughs> He's in episodes two and three, which I also watched yeah. with my brother and my in-laws over the uh, winter holidays. We watched the first three episodes, and yep, sure enough, Cracker Jack Marshak on the scene in episodes two and three. <laughs> oh my god. He's done basically like all the dream work of an actor that you could want. If he's done <laughs> The Littlest Hobo and Friday the 13th, the series, what else could you ask for? Yeah, he's the Canadian Christopher Lloyd, just playing all the most interesting roles. That's amazing. Wow, literally my dream career. I'm so jealous. As an added bonus, just to go three levels deep on Canadian media, I noticed that at least one of the actors was in a show called Maniac Mansion. And as a gamer yourself, Hill Street, does Maniac Mansion ring any bells? Maniac Mansion? Uh, no, I can't say that it does. It makes me think of Luigi's Mansion, but... <laughs> <laughs> but 
No, I don't know Maniac Mansion. Do tell. Uh, just as Minnesota makes you think of mini sodas. Um, yeah, because it's literally mini sodas. Fair. There was a game in the either late 80s or early 90s called Maniac Mansion. Uh, it was a point-and-click adventure. I did not know this, but apparently in Canada, for three seasons, just like Friday the 13th, the series, there was a show called Maniac Mansion. And in fact, it includes, uh, do you know who Eugene Levy is? Yes. Well, there's him and Joe Flattery, Flattery, Flaherty. I might have to uh, do a pickup of that. But yeah, it has Eugene Levy in him. So, you know, a few people you might have heard of. We all watched one episode of Maniac Mansion as well. And, oh man, if you think Friday the 13th, the series, is a fever dream, you go one level down and you're at the Littlest Hobo, and then you go another level down and you've hit Maniac Mansion. It was like suffering a 104-degree fever. (laughs) Uh, To even attempt to explain it is going to be absolute nonsense. I, I honestly don't know what I saw, but I guess to give you some little inkling of what this show was, the very first episode, as far as I can tell, if we selected the right episode and the correct place to begin, The first episode is the main character in this wacky mansion that kind of resembles the game in the broadest possible strokes. In his office, which for some reason is in in their basement, there's a pool, but there's no water in it. And he's set up shop in his office in the bottom of this empty pool, and he's asleep. And the entire first episode is a dream sequence in which he is picturing the show's 10th anniversary. And they're basically doing a trapped in the house clip show style show where they're all remembering their fondest moments of the last 10 years. Despite the fact that, of course, none of this exists because it's the very first episode. And this is how we're meeting all the characters. And you think, oh, that kind of makes sense because they're like flashing back to their best moments. So they're probably all like proper introductions. And yet, I assure you, basically nothing is an introduction. It is the strangest beginning to a show I've ever seen. And trying to watch it these days as a YouTube video, we were constantly asking ourselves, are we sure this is the right episode and really the right show? (laughs) When it was done, it was the same experience of like you and I watching Friday the 13th, the series, where we're like, did we just see that? Is that really something that just happened? Yeah. Is it more trippy than Willy Wonka and the Charlotte Chocolate? Oh my god, I can't even say it. Is it more trippy than Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? Or is it more trippy than Alice in Wonderland? Is it on that level? It's definitely around there. If Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory wasn't just part of the cultural zeitgeist, and you just stumbled across it, and you watched it on your own, you would think you were suffering a stroke, no question. And you would have to confirm with people, is this a real thing? And then when they assured you it's not only real, but was designed for children, you would probably throw up in your mouth a little bit and have to swallow it. (laughs) And yeah, that was essentially the experience of watching Maniac Mansion. Sickening. I hate trippy shit. I hate it so much. It enrages me. Okay, well then we will skip that one. We We will stop at Littlest Hobo and call that your basement. But (laughs) it was fascinating and I'm beginning to get a deeper insight, I think, into Canadian culture and Canadian media. I I wouldn't have really been able to define it. Well, I still can't. I certainly still can't define it. But I do feel like I'm beginning to at least get a sense that maybe there's a far deeper cultural divide there than I ever suspected. And the deeper I go down this well, the more terrified I am of Canadians. Yep. Where you need to come up for air. 
there is kind of a little bit of a subset within the horror genre of magician-related horror. Uh-huh. It's pretty niche, but I, I think it exists. Have you seen any other magician-related horror films you can think of? Actually, I don't think that I have. Okay, because I know you pre- you tend to prefer like supernatural and magic, and I know you've seen plenty of stuff with witches, but mm-hmm. in terms of stage magicians, not really. I feel like there's something lingering in the back of my brain, like maybe another episode of something with a magician, but no, I don't think I've seen any movies with magicians and horror or anything like that it's a good opportunity for movies there should be more even though i worked on the remake of wizard of gore Uh i have neither seen that or the original i have seen lord of illusions Uh it's good i haven't seen the director's cut i would really like to at some point those are the only two that i can kind of think of off the top of my head yeah, I haven't I I haven't seen those. I mean, in a way, The Prestige kind of is. I like that movie a lot. Yeah, I do too. I've actually been meaning to get back to that one. It's one that a lot of people forget about. Like that came out opposite Ed Norton and Paul Giamatti and The Illusionist, which as I recall also kind of hinted at, you know, the supernatural a little bit, but I feel like that was a little bit more of like a mystery just how is he doing it right. whereas uh The Prestige actually was a little bit more horrific, a little bit. I would not call it a horror film, but a little bit more horrific in terms of what was actually going on yep yeah i I agree yeah it occurs to me that so far friday the 13th with its haunted objects really hits on a lot of horror tropes and kind of even like subgenres of horror be it you know haunted dolls or a bit of a subgenre love potion thing uh kind of can be but uh, obviously this one the magician is kind of a subgenre Halloween, I guess. Yeah. Halloween subgenre of horror. Exactly. Any other thoughts on uh, episode six? I think it's a lower tier episode for me for no specific reason. I think maybe because it felt similar to something that I've seen before, which was the Supernatural episode, and I prefer the Supernatural episode. In my brain, I was thinking the whole time. I was, like, comparing them. I couldn't stop. So um, that made it feel less original to me, even though, ironically enough, this is the original episode. Right. I did like, <laughs> like I felt like the Lila character made it more fun. I liked her performance. I felt like she really gave it her all and did a really good job of not making it too hokey. Um, I saw like some of it coming. I, I kind of knew that Lila was the bad guy. I just had a feeling, but probably because I saw the Supernatural episode. I, I like knew it wasn't the magician. You knew it wasn't Bob Hope. So. Monty. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe that made it a little less exciting. Yeah. And for some reason, I felt like Mickey and Ryan had like a smaller role this time. I felt like we missed some of their banter. It was a little more Jack-centric because this was his world. Exactly. Which actually, I think it's just back to one of my curio questions. Uh, I mean, obviously, this wasn't only Jack, but he did take more of a role in this one, as you just pointed out, with Mickey and Ryan playing supporting roles. Right. Which is a little odd because really, I mean, really, so did episode five. I know. Yeah, and I like Jack, but I miss the the Mickey Ryan banter. You like the X Files ish tension between those two? Exa- yes, I do. I do. I dig it. I ship it. So <laughs> I miss I miss a little bit of that. But I, I it was it was not my least favorite episode, but it wasn't it was a lower tier episode for me. Speaking of horror subgenres, I don't know how familiar you are with the horror subgenre of Killer Doctor. Don't know if you've ever seen Dr. Giggles. I haven't seen Dr. Giggles, but I've seen, um, what's the one with the green injection? Oh, Reanimator? Yeah, that's kind of like Killer Doctor, kind of. Yeah, I'll include that. I mean, heck, if we're going that route, we could probably include Frankenstein, really. Yeah. 
opposite of a killer, but uh, accomplice after the fact, I guess. Right, yeah. Okay, that's cool. I, 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 that sounds like an interesting episode. I'm looking forward to that. Or have you ever listened to much true crime about killer nurses or doctors? Actually, yeah. I just, like a week or two ago, watched um, Bad Surgeon on Netflix, So who was about a doctor killing a ton of patients. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. I'll have to check that out. I wasn't aware that Netflix had any documentaries about killer doctors. Yeah, it's really good. Any last thoughts? I don't think so. Well, then, yeah. Hope you're excited about the prospect of a killer doctor episode. I am. I'm very excited. Get to jump headfirst in that whole subgenre of horror with our next episode. Yeah, I'm very excited. Let's do it. Thanks for listening, everyone. We know you have a lot of choices when choosing a Friday the 13th the series podcast, and we sincerely thank you for choosing ours. Maybe the real Jason is the friends we made along the way? Special thanks to Joshua Romeo for original music and to Stephen Yu for original art. And be sure to check out the Joe on Joe podcast, the only podcast where Joe Slepsky discusses G.I. Joe. If you want to support our show, you can leave a review and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. If you want an occasional update on our projects, you can sign up for our newsletter at the Inner Demon Entertainment website. And if you want to follow us on social media, Honestly, we don't like social media. We're not good at social media, but links can be found on our website. Next week, this podcast can't operate on this boy because he's my son. How can that be? Take care until then. And always remember what Carl said to Frylock. It don't matter. None of this matters. Good night, everybody. <laughs>